This evening's message is going to be somewhat topical in nature. If you have your Bible and you'd like to follow along, you can begin by turning to Genesis. Uh, we will be, begin, really, uh, there in Genesis chapter 9 this evening. As we consider together Babylon. Now, for the last several weeks, we have talked about Babylon. We have talked about the correlation between the prophecies in Jeremiah 50 and 51 and the correlation of the prophecies that we find in Revelation 17 and 18. And we've talked about Babylon and we've equated it to the world and we've, we've been exhorted to come out from Babylon and we've been exhorted uh, to uh, see Babylon for what it is and we've been exhorted to, to, to have that, that foundation. But what we haven't done in our Jeremiah series is draw those links clearly, definitively, between every instance of Babylon or, or the, the various instances of Babylon, the legacy of Babylon, if we can call it this, that we find in the scriptures. I've mentioned that it began at Babel. I've mentioned that it continued in legacy throughout uh, history. And I mentioned that it will have its final incarnation and final uh, uh, doom, really, in the time of the end. And yet, uh, in, in this particular context, we have not fully considered that end, considered the breadth and length of that teaching. Now, what I'm going to be talking about this evening will be similar in many ways to what we talked about in Revelation when we were there in Revelation 17 and 18. I'm really presenting much of the same material. You'll see many of the same pictures. And yet, we're going to be coming at it from a slightly different angle as we consider it from Jeremiah 50 and 51. We are still going to consider what the identity of Mystery Babylon might be, but what you're going to find as we trace this is that there are any number of philosophical directions that the world is going in now that have their roots in the spirit of Babylon. And it's my hope that as we approach this topic from the vantage point of Jeremiah rather than that of Revelation, the links between those chapters and the clarity on the subject will, be, will become greater. So we are going to study the legacy of a city and a nation called Babylon, also a philosophy rooted in the ideology that came from this system. As we do so, we'll find that when the Bible speaks of Babylon, it certainly does, especially in the prophets, regard a city and regard a nation, but also a particular philosophy, a fundamental representation of the essence of rebellion against God. Babylon in the Bible is, to put it simply, humanism, as we have come to know it today. And we're going to draw those links quite clearly but first, I want to take us back to where the story of Babylon begins. And the story of Babylon begins after Noah's flood. And in those days, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, the Bible says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Skipping to verse 7, the Bible says, And you, be ye fruitful and multiply and bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. So in the days following the flood, God, the Bible says, blessed Noah and his sons, and God commanded them that they would replenish the earth. Now it's worth noting here that the word replenish in English does not mean to fill again. It has the, the idea of re in there, but the definition of replenish is not to fill again. The definition of replenish simply means to fill or to complete. It is not so much a controversy in this passage that the, the Word of God calls for Noah to replenish the earth because in this case they are filling it again. But where it does become controversial is when in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 we have a record of God creating Adam and Eve and God tells them to replenish the earth. And many have read that word and said, Aha! There were people before Adam and Eve because the world is being replenished. Well, no, the word replenish does not mean to refill. The word replenish means to fill. So God calls for Noah and his sons to fill the earth. 
But something happens rather soon after these events, which represents a fundamental shift in mankind's determined relationship as it relates to the authority of God. And I say a fundamental shift, almost really a shift back, we might say. We know that the pre-Diluvian days, the days before the flood, were filled with rebellion, were filled with evil, were filled with man doing what was right in his own eyes, so much so that there was only a handful of righteous people left on the earth. Noah, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. The rest of the earth was wiped out, and so they begin to multiply. But it would not take long before mankind's need to step out from underneath the umbrella of God's authority would be strong in him once again. And to see this, we're going to start, we're going to jump ahead to Genesis 11, and then we'll fill in the gaps by going backwards a little bit into Genesis 10. And in Genesis 11, verses 1 through 6, the Bible says this, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them throughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. So our account begins in the days following Noah's flood here. Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, their wives, exit the ark, the ark of God's salvation, and they settle in a land in the plains called Shinar. That would be in the area, uh, generally speaking, between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. And at this time, as we might expect, the whole earth was of one language. They were very close relation. They spoke uh, a similar language. Now, Again, we'll consider just what happened after Noah in a few moments from Genesis 10. But here in Genesis 11, we find that this people, uh, uh, at, at this point, they are growing, they are multiplying, and they made a determination that they were not going to scatter. They made a determination that they were going to stay local, that they were going to stay close, that they were not going to, to uh, um, disperse among themselves. And notice the tone of this unity. They were going to make bricks. They were going to settle in the land. But the way it's spoken of, that they would build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Now, we considered that last week in Jeremiah 51 as God spoke of Babylon building its, its walls and having its tower unto the heavens. So we see that connection there. And this is where that, that idea came into their mind that they would build a tower unto heaven that man could ascend unto God, that man could reach the heavens through his own capacity. And not only this, but they said, let us make for ourselves a name. Both a persuasion and a determination, a heart of rebellion and defiance, that mankind united can through their ingenuity, through their capacity, because man has always been stronger together than apart, attain unto heaven. Be like God. Make for themselves a name. Get for themselves their own honor. Build for themselves their own glory. And this is the spirit of what we read there. They have cast off all loyalty to the God of heaven and they are seeking to be gods on earth. And this brings about the first instance we find in the Bible that's truly well-defined of a philosophy that is now called humanism. Now, we can see it go all the way back to the serpent, but this is where we see it truly from that perspective of mankind's capacity, of what man can be. And this brings us to the idea of humanism. If you are not familiar with the creeds of humanism, I'd like to fill you in on how they have defined themselves in the 20th century. And I'm going to take you to uh, a 15-point manifesto that was written in 1933. It's the first of three humanist manifestos that have been written 30 
years, 40 years apart, in 33, 73, and 2003. And um, in doing so, 30 years apart for that last one, uh, in doing so, understand a little bit about who they, how, what they claim themselves to be so that we can understand what it is that humanism has become defined as today. I'll tell you why I'm using the 1933 one in a minute. So these 15 tenets of the first humanist manifesto published in 1933. Number one, religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. I didn't say that. They call themselves religious humanists. Okay? This is one of the reasons why I'm using this manifesto, because they admit that it's a religion. After that, they kind of start to gloss over these things. Religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. Second, humanism believes that man is a part of nature and that he has emerged as a, process, as a result of a continuous process. As we continue to read these, I want you to see how point A goes to point B, goes to point C, and think about how our culture has progressed really since the days of the advent of Darwinian evolution, the advent of uh, higher criticism, the advent of that, that um, enlightenment thinking, if you're familiar. Third point. Holding an organic view of life, humanists find that the traditional dualism of mind and body must be rejected. Fourth, humanism recognizes that man's religious culture and civilization, as clearly depicted by anthropology and history, are the product of a gradual development due to his interaction with his natural environment and with his social heritage. The individual born into a particular culture is largely molded by that culture. In other words, there is no special revelation. There is no inherent morality. Everything is culturally developed. And so what we have as far as our understanding of morality, our definitions of morality, and what we say is right is not so much indelible truth. It is simply what our culture has taught us. It is how we have adapted in order to survive. Fifth, Humanism asserts that the nature of the universe depicted by modern science makes unacceptable any supernatural or guarantees of human values. Human dignity is not built in, in other words. Human value is only what we assign to it. Obviously, humanism does not deny the possibility of realities as yet undiscovered, but it does insist that the way to determine the existence and value of any and all realities is by means of intelligent inquiry and by the assessment of their relations to human needs. Religion must formulate its hopes and plans in the light of the scientific spirit and method. So if human needs change, so too must our inherent understanding of value. If human needs change, maybe our value of the elderly needs to change. If human needs change, maybe our value of the unborn needs to change. If human needs change, maybe our value of the freedom to express ourselves needs to change. Because man does not have inherent rights. Man does not have inherent human dignity. There is no supernatural uh, uh, being that is assigning to man a dignity. We assign dignity. Or we can take it away. Sixth, we are convinced that the time has passed for theism, deism, modernism, and several varieties of, quote, new thought, unquote. Seventh, Religion consists of those actions, purposes, and experiences which are humanly significant. Sounds like social justice and the social gospel, does it not? Nothing human is alien to the religious. It includes labor, art, science, philosophy, love, friendship, recreation. All that is in its degree expressive of intelligently satisfying human living. The distinction between the sacred and the secular can no longer be maintained. So they desire a breakdown between the sacred and the secular because it is a religion, right? So they are calling for that breakdown between the separation of church and state. They're calling for that breakdown between the secular and the religious, but that we only define the religious as it relates to humanism. This is, they are seeking a monopoly on religion and they're seeking to pair the state with the church, the humanism, the humanistic religious system, in order to enforce their values. Eighth, 
Religious humanism considers the complete realization of human personality to be the end of man's life and seeks its development and fulfillment in the here and now. This is the explanation of the humanist social passion. In other words, there's no afterlife. And we live for now, so we have a social passion, social justice, a passion for all things that are in the human experience. Therefore, nothing that relates to the human experience is off the table. Ninth, in the place of the old attitudes involved in worship and prayer, the humanist finds his religious emotions expressed in a heightened sense of personal life and in a cooperative effort to promote social well-being, social gospel, social justice. That is where man finds his meaning. In light of the fact that they don't place meaning in anything supernatural or in anything above themselves. Man is the pinnacle, therefore man finds meaning in himself. Tenth, it follows that there will be no uniquely religious emotions and attitudes of the kind hitherto associated with belief in the supernatural. No God. Eleventh, man will learn to face the crises of life in terms of his knowledge and their naturalness and probability. Reasonable and manly attitudes will be fostered by education and supported by custom. We assume that humanism will take the path of, the so- of social and mental hygiene and discourage sentimental and unreal hopes and wishful thinking. Twelfth, believing that religion must work increasingly for joy in living, religious humanists aim to foster the creative in man and to encourage achievements that add to the satisfaction of life. Thirteenth, religious humanism maintains that all associations and institutions exist for the fulfillment of of human life. The intelligent evaluation, transformation, control, and direction of such associations and institutions with a view to the enhancement of human life is the purpose and program of humanism. Certainly religious institutions, their ritualistic forms, ecclesiastical methods, and communal activities must be reconstituted as rapidly as experience allows in order to function effectively in the modern world. We have to break down modern function in order to build up something new, in order to build up something transformational that directs every single institution toward humanistic ends and means. Fourteenth, the humanists are firmly convinced that existing acquisitive and profit-motivated society has shown itself to be inadequate and that a radical change in methods, controls, and motives must be instituted. A socialized and cooperative economic order must be established to the end that the equitable distribution of the means of life be possible. The goal of humanism is a free and universal society in which people voluntarily and intelligently cooperate for the common good. Humanists demand a shared life in a shared world. Universalism, communism, government control of the means of production, um, no ownership, no private property, because man is inherently good, and so man can bring about cooperation unto uh, raising all boats, right? Fifteenth and last. We assert that humanism will, A, affirm life rather than deny it, B, seek to elicit the possibilities of life, not flee from them, and C, endeavor to establish the conditions of a satisfactory life for all, not merely for a few. By this positive morale and intention, humanism will be guided, and from this perspective and alignment, the techniques and efforts of humanism will flow. So, that's humanism. That's their definition, that's their goal, that's their aim, that's their desire. Completely redesign society, destroy the church. The faster the church can go away, they said, the better. Make the church go away, redefine society, bring everybody in under the thumb of this religious system called humanism, where we worship ourselves as gods. And that is Babel. Let us build a tower unto heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name. Again, why did I use 1933 instead of 1973 and 2003? Well, each one gets a little more verbose, and they're long, and they're discouraging. But also, they started hiding things a little bit in the, in the future manifestos. They started glossing over, redefining terms, making it more palatable, trying to come in through the back door, sneaking in, and they've done a good job. 
the modern church as it relates to the broad church is completely invested in social gospel, social justice, is completely invested in the tenets of humanism. The government is completely invested in the tenets of humanism. The world system is completely invested in the tenets of humanism. I took the time to read this because the philosophy of this document introduced to Eve in the garden was first established in modern history through Babel. And when God saw that unity, that mankind was uniting under one language and one banner to stand in defiance against God, he confused the languages of each family causing them to be unable to communicate one with another and so to bring a natural disunity to the world centered around unified languages, cultures, and nationalism where men would be more loyal to their own families, their own cultures, their own language than they would be to any sort of international order, thus effectively delaying the process of mankind's unification. And God did this to protect man from the deeper impulses of his own nature. And what we're finding today is that modern technology has completely, is completely tearing down what God built up in Babel, at, at Babel, the confusion of tongues, right? We have instant translation. We have any number of technological capacities to speak one to another in various languages and to communicate fully. We have an international order, international cooperation, and we are seeing now that thirst since the early 1900s, that thirst in the heart of man, seeing the potential and the capacity of the modern age, starting in that, the, the, the industrial revolution, to, to see the unification again, to, to pick up where they left off at Babel. Now we skip Genesis 10 because it considers the dispersion of people groups as a result of God's actions to confuse the languages. In Genesis chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, the Bible says this, Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were, were sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, and Medei, and Javan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tiras, and the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Ripat, and Togarma, the sons of Javan, Elisha, uh, uh, and Tarshish, and Kittim, and Dodanim, by these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, everyone after his tongue and after their families and their nations. Notice here we see the divisions according to tongue and nation, right? So this is effectively tracing what happened after Babel when these family groups dispersed. So they had their children, they had their grandchildren. Uh, then when God confused the languages, each one was given a different language and the family groups then uh, separated themselves one from another. And the sons of Ham, Cush and Mitzrayim, and Phut and Canaan. And the sons of Cush, Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Rayama and Sabteca. And the sons of Rayama, Shiva and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod. He became a mighty hunter, uh, excuse me, a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. So we see that uh, Nimrod remained in that area of Shinar, and the beginning of his kingdom was with Babel and the other cities in the surrounding. So we're introduced to these first generations following the flood. And as we trace these lines through Japheth and Shem and Ham, uh, we trace then Ham to Cush and Mitzrayim and Phut and Canaan, and then through Cush came this man, Nimrod, called a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the Bible says that the beginning of his kingdom was, in fact, Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna. So Nimrod is the grandson of Ham, the great-grandson of Noah. Now, we've not been along, around then that long after the flood, right? We're a couple of generations. Um, there's not a lot of time here, we're talking maybe a hundred years, probably not even, since the flood. And we get this history of Babel. And we get this rebellion. Now, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to begin to trace to you um, the history of Babel that the Bible does not 
present. Of course, this is thus tradition. It is a fairly unified tradition. As I mentioned when I preached through it in Revelation, I feel comfortable doing such uh, because there is a, a fairly significant unified tradition, not just as it relates to Babel itself, but then as it relates to how religion has fanned out, how pagan religion has fanned out from Babel, and how we can, the fingerprints that we can see on various cultures. But before we do that, there's a couple more things I'd like to do first. And the first thing I'd like to do is go to Revelation now. So we, we, we went to the beginning in Babel, and we've been preaching in the middle for a little while now, right? Let's go to the end. And let's consider Revelation 17 and 18. We'll hit the highlights and walk you through exactly what's happening in those two chapters. So the Bible tells us this in Revelation chapter 17. Uh, Revelation 17 introduces itself to be a vision of the judgment of who is called the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication. And the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And John goes on to describe this woman and the beast that she is riding. And verse 3 through 6 of Revelation 17 says this, So he carried me away in spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hands full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. So this woman is given several names here. Mystery, mother of uh, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And so she is the mother, right, of unfaithfulness. She is the mother of abominations, which tells us that this is not the branches that we're considering, we're considering the roots, right? Babylon has been around a long time. She's the mother of all of these abominations. She's the mother of spiritual unfaithfulness. She is the central tenant of spiritual unfaithfulness. And she is called Babylon the Great. And then the angel goes on to give the mystery of this woman and the beast that she is riding. And he begins, I mentioned this in passing uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, he begins with the beast, and he describes this beast as having seven heads and ten horns. We don't have the ability to defend every interpretive step that I'm taking today. If you want the defense of all of the interpretive steps, you need to go back and listen to my Revelation series. Uh, I can't rehash it all. But we would understand that the beast that we see here, this beast is, is the one that we call Antichrist the man of sin, the son of perdition, the 11th horn of Daniel. And the angel says that the seven heads and the seven, uh, are seven kings, five of which have been prior to John's day. The sixth was a contemporary with John. And the seventh was after John's day, would be after John's day. The angel also says in chapter 17, verse 9, that these seven heads are seven mountains or seven kingdoms, one after another throughout history. And then he says that there would be an eighth who is of the seven that have gone into perdition. So an eighth kingdom that is of the seven that have gone into perdition. And this beast, headed by Antichrist, so the king and the mountain, uh, mountains reflect kingdoms, kings represent their heads, and these, the, there would be an eighth who is of the seven. So he will be in the spirit of the seven that have gone before him. There will not be a huge change there. And then we see these ten horns. And these ten horns are ten kings which did not have kingdoms. They did not have mountains, but were given power from the beast. 
Now what we connect this to in Revelation is the great beast, that terrible fourth beast, who had ten horns and a notable eleventh horn that came up. And when the notable eleventh horn came up, it plucked out three of those ten horns, which is why you see an X next to three of those names, three of those kings. Now, but what we found in Jeremiah and what we see in Revelation is that there will be a multitude of kings that will rejoice. And we would see that these ten kings, these ten kings will together destroy the, the harlot. And so the three kings that are destroyed will be destroyed after Babylon is destroyed, is how we kind of look at the timetable. So the 11th horn of Daniel among the 10 horns of the kings. The 11th horn is the beast, Antichrist at the head of that. Then there are these 10 kings who are given power, but not kingdoms, by the beast. Daniel 7 is where we find that three of those 10 horns will be plucked up by the 11th horn. So these 10 kings destroy the woman, this mystery Babylon, in obedience to the beast. And we read thus in Revelation 17, verse 16, the 10 horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. We combine that with Jeremiah 50, verse 41, as we considered it last week. Behold, a people shall come from the north and a great nation and many kings shall be raised up from the coasts of the earth. Burning Babylon with fire, just as Jeremiah prophesied. Unless we get confused about what we're talking about, Revelation 17, verse 18, reiterates, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. The woman is Babylon. Chapter 18 is a deeper description of her destruction. We read many of these verses together over the course of the past several weeks in Jeremiah. Suffice it to say that the city will be utterly ruined. The merchants of the world will sorrow because they made, she made them rich. But these kings will rejoice in that Babylon has been destroyed, presumably paving the way for Antichrist's kingdom without any sort of contradiction, without any sort of competition. Now, it's my contention that Babylon is described here as both a spirit and a city. Remember from the humanistic, Humanist Manifesto of 1933 that they called their conviction religious humanism. And it is in this that they admit openly what today they are attempting to obscure with all of their might, which is that there is a system of religious zeal that undergirds what they are pushing. We saw this a couple of weeks ago as we talked through just one of those examples of seducing spirits and doctrines of demons when I talked about climate change. I told you it sounds more like a religion, climate change hysteria, ecofascism. Ecofascism sounds more like a religion than it does sound like science, right? That's not a surprise because it's religious humanism. And ecofascism is entirely in line with the humanistic needs, vision, and goals. That humanism is a religious system with all of the trappings of religion and its central tenet of every pagan religion upon the planet throughout history is what we find. So recall, a few weeks ago in Jeremiah 50, we spoke about the mother-child cult and its legacy in the Tower of Babel. We also talked about this early on in Jeremiah. I believe it was Jeremiah 17. I think it may have been earlier than that. As we were considering together um, the idea of the Queen of Heaven that was being worshipped in Jerusalem in those final days. We considered how Nimrod, by tradition, was killed and his wife Semiramis sought to maintain power by declaring their son Tammuz to be the resurrected Nimrod. And Nimrod was thus the Messiah. And Semiramis became the queen mother or the queen of heaven to the resurrected Savior. Establishing the origins of what we'd refer to as the mother-child cult. Where the son would be born of a virgin and who would be God in flesh to redeem mankind. And the mother is the co-redemptress calling mankind unto a humanistic end, unto a pagan end. And you say, well, pastor, don't we do this too? I mean, isn't that the nativity story? It's not. See, Satan knows the word of God. He quoted it back to Jesus in the 40 days of temptation, didn't he? Didn't he quote scripture? Satan did. 
He knows the word of God. He knows the promises of God. Satan likes back doors. Satan likes deception. So if Satan can concoct a pagan system that sounds very much like the real thing, but that compromises in key points to bring about humanism rather than obedience to the word of God, then he is going to be very successful. We do not have a mother-child cult. This isn't the same as the Virgin Mary and Jesus, the Son of God. In the mother-child cult, the Virgin Mother is divine. She has divine status. She is a co-redemptress. She is the Queen of Heaven. In the Bible, the Virgin Mother holds no such status. She is blessed as a vessel used by God. But when Jesus was ministering, And his disciples came and said, your mother and brethren are without. And he said, who are my mother and my brethren? These are my mother and my brethren and as many as believe on me and follow me. To this end, you will have gathered that the Roman Catholic Church should be added not to the list of faithful churches, but to the list of those worship systems, pagan worship systems that follow the mother-child cult of Babylon. This would also explain why the Roman Catholic Church sought in its time of greatest power to merge itself with the political powers of the day through crowning holy Roman emperors, using the power of the state and of the economy to wield force within the world. It should be noted that Islam and its caliphates reflect the same evil system. And the same system has existed since Babel. It would not be too big of a leap for modern humanism, historic Roman Catholicism, and even modern-day Islam to find a merging because they're not that far apart. And finally, it should be noted that even among atheist or secular governments, the same apostate religious zeal exists. We see it in progressive attempts to use the power of the state to force obedience to the tenets of their religious zeal, sexual perversions, economic redistribution, any number of religious ideologies that make mankind and the government itself the God in the center of the worship system. And the pagan religious zeal of governments and institutions are not hidden from mankind. You might recall if you were here from Revelation, a few of these pictures. Here we have a statue which is part of a UN art collection. It is of a man beating a sword into a plowshare. This is intended to reflect the promise given by God to the nation of Israel about the coming kingdom. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Micah chapter 4, verse 3. That in the day when Messiah reigns upon the earth, Messiah's holy and just presence will mean no more war. Thus, the swords will be able to be beaten into plowshares because nobody would dare offend in his holy mountain. Man will need no weapons of war in that day. Because God will bring peace and the scriptures are very clear that only the Son of God can do this. That this will not happen upon the earth until the day that the Son of God brings it to pass in his kingdom. But the stated goal of the UN is to bring about this utopian state. Only through a combined and unified effort of mankind rather than through repentance and alignment with Jesus Christ. It is an attempt to bring about God's kingdom man's way. It is an attempt to bring about what God has promised, but only without God. We talked about this a little bit last week. Satan's counterfeit kingdom. Attached to the UN is a council called the the Unity and Diversity World Council. Attached to this council is a Unity and Diversity Interfaith Ministry led by a graduate of Harvard Seminary named Leland Stewart. In an interview with him, he said this, Unity in Diversity Council is a worldwide coordinating body looking toward a time in which there will be a one single organized energy of networking throughout the planet. I am very interested in a harmony of all religions, not just to give birth to a new religion, but rather to produce, let's call it a universal religious outlook 
through which there can be a new connecting of all cultures, all religions, all races. Sounds like the 1933 Humanistic Manifesto, doesn't it? Former UN Director Dr. Ernst Winter said this in an interview. In this growing consciousness of sharing godliness and looking for a leader to lead everyone into this new heaven, the UN plays a very important role in as much as it is a support system for any group that meets to support these matters. And so we find men like Tony Blair, the former Prime Minister of Great Britain, and his One World Faith Foundation, which seeks to unify all faiths under one umbrella. And we see men like Rick Warren, who are a part of that commission. And that should not surprise us. And so we say, aha, it's the UN. That's the source of Babylon. That's the source of all humanism. But here's the thing, it's not just the UN, is it? Now, the UN is most certainly, most certainly bears the spirit of Babel. Most certainly bears the spirit of Babylon. From soul to crown. The anti-Semitism, the humanism, the desire to break down nationalism, it's all there. But things get even more interesting when you consider the European Union. Strasbourg, France, seat of the European Union. They have a parliament building which bears a very postmodern design in that it looks unfinished. Said to symbolize the unfinished nature of the building of Europe itself, it actually bears a striking resemblance to a picture that had been painted a number of years ago depicting the Tower of Babel. And if this sounds a little conspiratorial, you ain't seen nothing yet. Could it be that the aspirations of the EU, like the UN before it, and Hitler and Napoleon and the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Empire of John's day serve the same end, which is the spirit of Babel? Let's keep exploring. Across a small body of water in Strasbourg lies four buildings that comprise the primary meeting places and and, and functioning of the EU. They're named after prominent politicians. From left to right, we have Louis Weiss, maybe Louise, I don't know, Winston Churchill, Pierre uh, Flimlin, and Vaclav Havel, the four buildings there of the EU. In front of these buildings, there are numerous statues, and these statues are intended to represent various concepts that are important to the vision of this European Union. In front of the Winston Churchill building, we find this particular statue. This is not subtle. They are not hiding. This is a woman riding a beast. This is hidden in plain sight. Their intentions are clear. They don't perhaps understand the spirit of delusion that they are under But this is the fruit of humanism. This is the fruit. This is the spirit of Babel. It's found in the UN. It's found in the EU. It's found at the seat of the the global international scientific community. Geneva, Switzerland, there's a science facility called CERN, C-E-R-N. It's a nuclear research facility founded by 12 countries in Europe, home to the famous LHC, right, the Large Hadron Collider, which they were seeking to find the God particle, right? The world's largest particle accelerator. Higgs boson. It's an institute of science for the good of mankind. And in front of this institute of science for the good of mankind, we find this. I introduce you to the Hindu god Shiva, nicknamed the destroyer. This false god is said to have the duty of destroying all worlds at the end of creation to dissolve them into nothingness. Shiva's destruction, however, is not said in Hindu culture to be negative, but rather positive and constructive. She destroys all things that they may be built up better, tearing down what is that it may be rebuilt in a new and transformational way. Destruction to facilitate a smooth transition from one stage of life to another. A transition from, say, humanism to 
transhumanism. And my point in all of this is not to make you paranoid. But when Paul writes that the mystery of iniquity already works, he wasn't joking. It is still working. This has never gone away. From the days of Babel, the the spirit of Babylon has existed and it is strengthening in this unified world where all of the things that God instituted in Babel to confuse the languages, to create nations, and to bring a dispersion that would hinder unity are now being undone through technology. Now, I want to take these considerations and add to them what we have studied over the past three weeks in Jeremiah 50 and 51. The strong connections between the destruction of a city as specifically described in Jeremiah 50 and 51, and the nature of the destruction of mystery Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18. There have been any number of theories about what mystery Babylon could be, and I, I really don't want to dig into that mud. Uh, we've mentioned already, of course, uh, Alexander Hislop in his famous book, Two Babylons, really sees the Roman Catholic Church as that source, and it's very possible. But as you've seen this evening, The Roman Catholic Church is not the only institution anymore that bears the spirit of Babylon. The UN bears the spirit of Babylon. The EU bears the spirit of Babylon. The entire scientific community is lending its aid to the spirit of Babylon. Some people have said that it's the Islamic Caliphate, the 12th Imam, that will be Babylon. Some people have said it's a major financial hub like New York or London. Some people believe it's Jerusalem itself. Now remember, the Bible does not tell us. But as I have mentioned before, I believe that personally, there's going to be a new Babylon rebuilt. And I believe it's going to be on the, that same, in that same plane. That's where Babel was. That's where the Babylon of Jeremiah 50 and 51 was. It makes sense to me that that's where the last one would be. But more importantly than that is a reminder that what we're dealing with here is a philosophy. And what we are called to do, as we considered very strongly last week, is to come out from her, lest we be destroyed in her judgments. And so what it is incumbent upon us to do today is not to live in fear, not to live in in a spirit of, of paranoia, but to understand what... The, to understand what the philosophy, the ideology, the religion of Babylon is and to be able to identify it wherever it rests. And the reason why is because when we can't do this, then we end up with churches like we see today. We end up with churches that are 100% devoted to social justice, the social gospel, rather than to the gospel of salvation. We end up with churches. We end up with people that are so consumed with seeing mankind benefited in the physical that there is no interest anymore in the spiritual. And when churches are there, whether they realize it or not, they are operating under Babylon's rules, not God's rules. They are operating in Babylon's realm not God's realm. Time fails me this evening to trace how this came about, to trace through men like Rick Warren and Joel Olstein how this came about, to trace through men like Robert Schuller, who would have been, if, if you're tracing Joel Osteen, Rick Warren, Rob Schuller, to trace how it is they came to their philosophies and how it is the church has been merged with the spirit of Babylon. But we know it has to happen. Not the true church, of course. But we know it has to happen because we see this one world religious system at the end. We know that that's where humanism is pointing. And it is for this reason that we have to hold these lines. Can we be stewards of the earth? Absolutely we can. But we cannot give in to the humanistic philosophies of ecofascism. Can we desire to see men and women taken care of and educated? We can. But we cannot give in to the humanistic philosophies of collectivism. 
These, the, these are not just bad economic decisions. These are not just empty systems. This is Babylon. This is current Babylon. And when we see through those eyes, it changes everything. It changes the very spirit with which these things are being brought to bear. And it also reminds us, how is it that the entire scientific community will put so much effort behind these things that have so little science behind them? Whether we're talking about abortion or we're talking about the, the climate hysteria or we're talking about any of the number of other uh, science, pseudo-evolution, how is it that so much effort can be brought to bear when these people are, are seeking for evidence and seeking for proof and doing experiments because Babylon roots itself deeper than the intellect. It roots itself in a worldview. It roots itself in ideology. It's a religion. It roots itself in religion. And that is how people can go A, B, C, Z and think that there's no inconsistency. And so we see this. We see it in Babel. We see it in Jeremiah's day. We see it in the end. And what we find is one unified theme. Just as we see a unified theme of redemption, an arc of redemption, an arc from innocence to kingdom, we see a satanic arc, a humanistic arc from Babel to Babylon, to mystery, Babylon. And as we identify it in the world around us, it helps us know what it is that we're to come out from. What institutions are we to come out from and be separate? What philosophies are we to come out from and be separate? What ideologies are we to come out from and be separate? Because where we see the spirit of Babylon working, we know that it's working in contradiction to the Lord. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.